Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 124. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. Oh, there you guys are. Oh my God, the last episode. I didn't know where you went, but uh, you're back. Yeah, you know, we saw you, you know, you, you snuck off with the recording equipment, you know, you tiptoed through the hallway, and you did a very good job. You did a very good job. I enjoyed the episode, so... Maybe maybe we shouldn't even be on this shit anymore, man. Maybe we should. <laughs> yeah, Eddie says he's ending the podcast, but it's just an excuse to. It'll just in. I want to say like three months after the podcast <laughs> ends, there's just going to be a clip podcast. <laughs> no longer extended. Just lull me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I would never abandon my boy. Um, our double feature this week. Speaking of this being the final season, is all about finality. These are the final films by two of the all-time masters who worked through the silent era. Through I say silent era as if they were in Hollywood for it, but uh, <laughs> through silent filmmaking through World War II, uh, one of them came to Hollywood and then went back uh, and then made a couple of late period masterpieces in the early 60s to close the lid, to slam the lid on their respective beautiful careers. Um, both of these films revisit themes, uh, if not you know directly characters like Mabusa with Ozu, character types that have been in their films throughout uh, obviously, the obsessions of each filmmaker are there, but more than anything, it's just the quality. The yeah. quality is still there. These guys are still fucking kicking, and they all went out with a bang, or they both went out with a bang, just like we will here at Extended Clip in a matter of months. Yeah, I like in making this selection, I, I don't know, you kind of got what I was getting at, like where it's like, I think they have a similar scale of careers, like two great masters. And I know on the pod, we talk a lot about late style. And I think that Ozu's late style, I've seen a lot less of the later Lang movies, but is just some of my favorite, like work ever committed to film. And, uh, death comes to us all. It's yeah. going to happen one day. You got to accept it. And it's like, it's interesting with, for me with final films is like considering how much, like, like engaging with the film, like how much the director was aware that it would be their last film. Mm. Like Lang's, like uh, Mabusa feels more like a final film because I think Ozu died pretty unexpectedly he had uh, another one in pre-production uh which was actually and also we haven't said the double feature it's an autumn afternoon by yasujiro ozu and the thousand eyes of dr mabusa by fritz lang but uh yeah uh, ozu had another classic daddy giving away his daughter movie planned <laughs> mm -hmm. uh just like late spring just like this one just like i'm sure he had other ones uh where actually the um chishu ryu character who was kind of the patriarchal ozu stand-in uh if you want to read it like that at least was also battling cancer like ozu was mm -hmm. and so it 
was bound to take a much more autobiographical and very dark turn. And, you know, obviously we all wish we could see the films that our favorite directors never got to make, but an autumn afternoon really does um, close the book on Ozu in a really poetic and beautiful way. You're right, JT, like with sometimes the final movies, like sometimes you could kind of feel like a director being like, this is the last effort. And I guess with, with Ozu, right, someone who kind of revisited a lot of the same themes throughout his whole career or whatever, for his final film, kind of ha- it has to be something like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, it, no, no one has to do anything. It's not going back to Dragnet Girl 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, like it has to be, you know, meditation on, you know, the woes of, uh, you know, family life or, or, or whatnot. And uh, I don't know, like it, it, like it kind of, kind of just having that standard Ozu feeling or whatever, like almost kind of gives it more weight in a sense, like kind of seeing him go through that motion again. And, you know, something like, I think I say this every time I, uh, we review an Ozu movie and it's like, yeah, it's, he's one of those directors. Like if you have a very distinct idea of what his movies or at least you think you do in your head. And like, I'm always like, I'm always thinking like, he's a great director, obviously, but it's like, I don't know if I'm in the mood right now to watch like an Ozu movie, but it's like, I don't know. I think his level of quality just brings it. It's like, all right, he'll put you in that mood. Absolutely. He'll put, he'll make you, uh, you know, kind of think where he's thinking. And, uh, I don't know. I think that's an an amazing trait. And an autumn afternoon is, you know, no different. And this one, I think while it is like, pretty intense and sad like particularly the ending mm-hmm. i think that it balances a lot of his comedic skill as well and there are a lot of really funny beats and i think like he goes back and forth whether like playing character traits uh for comedy and then like making that into like a sad thing like i mean it will get into the plot like at a greater detail i'm sure but um, just the uh, old uh, professor, the the old teacher, who he's like kind of like when he's out out with the boys at dinner, it's like oh okay, it's kind of funny they're just plying him with drinks and like he's yeah. knocking him back, but that very quickly becomes a very sad thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the the guy you're talking about, they refer to as the gourd. Oh uh, hell yeah! <laughs> who he was the teacher of uh, the Chishuryu patriarch character uh, Shuhei. Hirayama and the Hirayama family. This is kind of the, the focal point of the movie, but you also, more than any other Ozu, see him with his boys. You know, yeah. you see him at work a little bit, but you see him with his boys and him and his boys from back in the day, from back in school, before the war even. Um, they they have these reunions, they call them, even though they're very regular. Uh, <laughs> it seems they drink together every few days, but they still call it like a school reunion pretty much. <laughs> and then they get the guy who taught them the old Chinese classics. Uh, the gourd and he apparently was a real dickhead to them back in the day real strict and they're like we're old fogies by now i'm sure this old fogey will just get along with us and he does and it's like really poetic and beautiful until it becomes sad as you said jt because you know these guys all work in modern offices you see out their window and you just see the tops of those not smokestacks, but the, the the big poles that emit small smoke and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you could tell they're high up on these office floors in these tall buildings. And then you see how the gourd is doing, and it's just him and his middle-aged daughter running a ramen shop and living above it. And the middle-aged daughter is so over his shit. 
she's just like, really? You're going to come home hammered right now? I'm the only one working here. It's not busy, but like, I'm the only one here. You're just going to go drink with your former students? Like, uh, yeah. she has reason to be mad. It's mm-hmm. it's not just a nagging wife. Uh, but at the same time, it kind of is because you just want to be with the boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, like, everything's kind of considered in, you know, everything in this movie, is especially hanging with the boys, right? Of course, there's a lot of great moments, but that's where a lot of kind of like the sourness of this movie kind of seeps in or kind of like, like the Chisu Ryu character is like a kind of guy who just would go hmm to yeah. everything. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like very passive person, kind of uh, not really thinking things ahead. It's so it seems. And his friends are like, dude, you got to marry off your daughter. Like she's kind of getting there or whatever. And it's like, you know, you didn't like, and once kind of this older teacher, the Gord character comes along, that every time like they have fun with him, you know what I mean? And then when they realize he's kind of down and out, you know, he they're still like their name's still in their mouths, he's still yeah. around or whatever. And like every time, you know, they have their fun, you know, oh the gourd, right? The gourd and then one of his friends is like, That's gonna be you, by the way. Like that's <laughs> yeah. that's that's the your life trajectory is that. Like you're gonna be a it's so funny because it's like it's like you're just going to be alone with your daughter and make her an old maid, and it's and the, as we know the conclusion of this movie, it's like, well, that doesn't, you know, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, make anything better. Him. Yeah, it's like a, he has to give her away for her own sake. Yeah, but it's just like either way, he's fucked. Yeah, it's which, like either way, it's just like which I think is there's something obviously it's very sad, like the notion of like the older generation ultimately has to die out to give way to the young but like there's there's some peace and like beauty in Mm -hmm. that too because it's like he's acknowledging that sad process and that it's just like she's gonna be better and like she'll be happier and that's what's important and i like how as you said he's very passive malcolm and it's like life is just showing him what he needs to do as hard as it may be and he's like he's taking it into account but he's he really doesn't want to do it like the first well, first of all, the first image is those stacks, those red and white poles with a clear blue sky behind them. Hey, Ozu's always talked about, or his films have always talked about the creeping Western influence, particularly after the war. And in this, it's even given some lip service. You know, hey, if we won the war, they'd be over there fucking singing Japanese songs, <laughs> which I thought is great. That was uh, great. But also, this is, you, you see more than any other Ozu film that I've seen, at least, you see more uh, products with English language labels on them. Mm-hmm. They might be Japanese products, but they are in the yeah whatever english text uh and then that first image you see the red white and blue so vividly and you see red white and blue combined quite a bit in this film not to be you know a to b color theory guy because i kind of hate that with movies but i feel like ozu is so fucking selective with his color it's never just for the sake of aesthetic pleasure you know it's like it's a guy who held out on shooting color for as long as he could and then just gave it his all when he finally did and i think this is of the three color Ozu films I've seen, I think this is the one where he's really working at something with like every image almost. Going to another point from that is right after that, we see uh, maybe a secretary, a, a younger woman who works in the office yeah. who, you know, he asks her, are you married? And she's like, no, it's just me and my dad. And it's just like, well, there are other people like that, but then she's going to get married off too, you know? And then yeah. you get the the old maid that uh, the daughter of the gourd becomes. And you have his buddy who has a young wife. Don't we love the young wives oh, on the, this podcast? Uh, <laughs> the young uh, wife guy fucking rules. Or they have that little, like, I was, 
I mean, I've seen this movie before, but still, I was like kind of scandalized that they have the boner <laughs> pill like conversation. Yes. Taking blues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was. I. I was like. I was trying to think. Like, did I? Like. It was that intentional? Because I was like, were like boner pills even blue back? You know, have they just always been blue? I guess I don't you know. know. I mean? yeah. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, that's. But that that's that also like I love the of, gesture yeah. that uh, Chishurio does to implicate taking boner pills, where he yeah. like slams something into his hand and then pops it into his mouth. He does that multiple times <laughs> to indicate, like, are you, you know, are you uh, getting a little extra help there to <laughs> keep up with your young wife? And like that's that's I love that scene because that's where kind of like the resentment of him kind of always mentioning his young wife kind of like seeps into it. And they're like he's like I don't know if like you're a good guy or not. <laughs> like, <laughs> you keep talking about your young wife so much or, or whatever. But like I I think what what's so great about like kind of the Chisu Ryu character in this is like he's you know as a passive person he's always thinking about how life was, what life could be. He's going to the bar, eyeing the bartender, telling you know, his kids about it. It's like, I like her. You know, kind of looks like her mo- mom. Not going to do ever going to do anything <laughs> about it. If anything, uh, I'll yeah. maybe bring one of you to the bar to show you. Yeah. But that's as far as yeah. I'm going to go. I'll request a song from her to bring back the old memories. But that's as far as I'll go. Yeah. And like just a man who's just kind of, his plan is to kind of drift through the present. Not really think about, you know, much of anything. And like, I don't know, like Ozu's portrayal of this is so, of course, it's very sad and it's, but it's, I don't know, it's its kind of just an, it's, it's an interesting look. It's an interesting look at a person who's just kind of like, like just kind of sad and wistful and mm-hmm. uh, doesn't really, you know what I mean? Doesn't really have many plans or whatever. And I guess that kind of bites <laughs> him in the back or yeah. something. Yeah, no, I mean, I like his, his contemplative nature like really works as like a great foil to his like friends because I think yeah. one of them after I have this amazing line written down where the boys are talking about after they've met the gourd, uh, they, they've seen the gourd's living situation where they're like together and they're like, his daughter is pretty cold and unfriendly <laughs> <laughs> and just like so like oblivious to that. And I mean... Uh, Chishu Ryu's character, like, to to a certain extent, there's, like, an obliviousness to it. I mean, it's like, yeah. pa- he's so passive, it's kind of, like, hard to tell. But, I mean, he's clearly perceptive enough where he, like, changes and, like, he makes yeah. that yeah. move, the, the decision, because he's shown, like, what the future could be for True. him. And you also have to think, like, when his daughter was of marrying age, this guy was as shaken up as anyone was from World War II. Yeah. Like you have to think mm-hmm. back the timeline a little bit since she is an older lady at this point. And he even says a line before they drop him off. He says, ever since the war, everyone is so cold. Yeah. And this is 1962. Yeah. You know, the war's been over and it's just, it keeps creeping. The, the What hangs over these people just keeps creeping in more and more. Yeah. And I guess that's, I, I feel like... I didn't finish my thought i guess with like his like his passiveness but what's so interesting right is like we have a society that's going in the other direction right Mm. like you know let's like not even like it does address like the western influence a little bit but mostly it's like all right we got to get get on with our lives we got to you know make something of ourselves whatever and like uh yeah ryu's just personality like his instincts are just different from those 
or whatever. He's not like, yeah, I don't think he's a dumb guy or whatever, but he's just, he just uh, has different, a different skill set than everyone else. Like mm-hmm. when he meets the person he used to be, uh, he was an army superior to this person, you know, a captain to this person when they served in the war and like the way they talk about the war, you know, of course his, you know, his underling is like, it's like, Oh, I wish Japan would have won. You know what I mean? You know, it's talking about the scene you were talking about, about, you know, um, you know, Japanese kids shaking their butts to Western songs or whatever. And like, he's like, I don't know if it would have been good if we would have won, <laughs> like, yeah. which is, yeah. is very like a very like, uh, like the way he delivers that, you know what I mean? And that his friends like, yeah, maybe you're right to be honest, but yeah, like, I mean, it's rough. Yeah, like yeah. it's a, it's a rough thing. You think of, I, not to go, you know, poli sci slash you, uh, history one Oh one, but it's just like, yeah, the the U.S. did unthinkable damage to them. Yeah. Obviously, the two atomic bombs—the only two ever to be dropped in world history—like yeah. the fuck, that's irreparable damage. They also were on the side of the Nazis. You know, it, it, it's it's a complicated issue, and it's like obviously it's gonna take fucking two decades to even have that thought of like maybe we shouldn't have won. Even as a guy who was fighting yeah. and was uh, uh, an officer of some sort, it's like, it's it's a very difficult conversation and I think it really plays into the passivity and the the internalness. More, I think more than passive, yeah. he's just really yeah. internal. He's, yes. he's just kind of taking it all in and formulating it all before he can come up with what he needs to do because it is so fucking difficult because and, you're combining that like national and world history alongside just like the usual ozu themes and obviously those are usual ozu themes as well but of family obligation and aging and loneliness and it's the personal and the political hey we've heard that phrase before (laughs) but here i think they intersect in a way that is like tragic and just like beautiful as well well i think like for me ozu has always been someone who i like can pretty directly like compare to john ford and i think this is like his like most 40 and I mean obviously there's the direct like military reference that takes place here but just like the passive and internal quality is like uh Marty in the long gray line and just I was thinking about long gray line when you brought up Ford yeah exactly it's like there is and I mean Ford like Ozu like they both understand like the wave of progress is coming. And with that, there is like good and bad, but like to fight against it is foolish and you just have to accept that. And in like accepting the change of life, you notice like little beauty along the way. And there are just like so many, I don't know, just like intimate moments in this that are like sad, funny, tragic. I don't know. It it covers the whole range. And to speak a little more on that scene, just from an aesthetic point of view, I mean, obviously the, the needle drop of the song is fantastic, but also the way that this bar, Tori's bar is just like washed in red and the way that he kind of stumbles out each time. And I don't know. I I love seeing those classic Shochiku alley sets that, you know, uh, have been there on that lot for however long, because here you also see some real locations like, uh, the baseball game that you only see the bright lights above early on when his coworker mm-hmm. talks about going to the game you just see a couple shots of the stadium lights and the advertisements and then you cut to them 
watching the game on a tiny black and white TV. You know, you get a pretty good amount of game footage too. I was very happy yeah. to see that. <laughs> uh, some progress from the juvenile television watching of Good Morning to, you know, <laughs> uh, you know that fucking wrestling they were watching. It moved on to a man's game put of on baseball. The game. Yeah, let's <laughs> put on the game. Enough of that show. <laughs> <laughs> you talking about the bar has got me thinking. Like the, the classic... Um, signature Ozu shot people, you know, references like kind of like uh, like uh, camera kind of low to the floor, kind of showing like the you know usually the family were focused on like their home or whatever or how to like hold on a room after people have exited. That stuff's here. That stuff's all great. But um, I thought I think he's he's kind of got like a bar stool shot. Yeah. I feel like yeah that that like is maybe maybe I'm just late to this <laughs> bar maybe, stool Ozu yeah bar stool Ozu but <laughs> talk maybe, about the game talk yeah. about ladies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bar, like bar stool Ozu, Ozu maybe I'm late to like the bar stool Ozu re- uh, revelation but I love like. His, I feel like I've seen it in uh, at least a couple of his movies. What's the where... other color movie that we talked about on the podcast? Equinox Flower. Equinox, Equinox Flower, Flower has some good barstool yeah. stuff too. Yeah. There, there's yeah. even the bit where the guy pretends not to be a regular at the bar. I feel like maybe it's a later Ozu kind of thing of going yeah. to the bar. Drinking. Because they're drinking throughout his yeah, filmography, yeah. but they're often sitting to Tommy's style on the floor drinking uh, in the earlier True. films. And then in some of the later ones, and you know, I could be proven wrong here, but I believe uh, from what I've seen, it's the later ones where they have that classic bar setup that yeah. might be more of a Western bar setup. But I feel like he'll have like the camera just like a little bit lower than most people would set it and kind of mm-hmm. just have like um, like people sitting in like these high bar stools and kind of like in like the right of the frame will have like the bar stools like going out diagonal like i don't i just i love the bar stool shot yeah it's great but it also like, looks good i mean like he has uh, like the conversation he has with the person he used to be a captain of like he does a lot of good like uh like bar interactions and also to speak of like the gourd or whatever the way that like transitions to where he reuse like coming to visit to like give money to the gourd or whatever because he feels bad for him and then you know of course the gourd's like I feel really bad accepting this. You know what I mean? And like, and then like, you know, the, the reuse, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it. Military inferior or whatever. His, the person he used to be captain for rolls in. He's like, Oh shit. It's like, it's you. It's like, let's go somewhere else. Like the food sucks here. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's, it's always awful. And then like (laughs) the, the gourd always has to just kind of like silently eat that as like, Ryu and him go to another place and yeah. that's another thing about Ozu movies I've always con- like I've always considered and like sometimes he'll put explicitly because like the way you know maybe this is a very you know white boy western way of thinking th- of things but like the the way like you know those some of those Japanese houses are designed there's not like doors you could shut or whatever mm-hmm. it's like and like a lot of characters will talk about other characters directly on screen and I'm yeah. always thinking like they hear that, right? Like they, they kind of hear that. And I think, am I wrong in late spring? That's kind of addressed towards the end, right? Or I something. So. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it is like, like it is like, cause you know, kind of playing with like, I don't know, like the cultural manners of how like, you know, you don't talk shit in front of people, Yeah. but it's like these people still kind of have to, I don't know. They have to, it's even more sad because they have to pretend like they didn't hear it. But it's like, nice and polite. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like in Hill of Freedom, as Rio Casa's character says, you know, being nice and polite is only being nice and polite. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, and you know, obviously that being a guiding principle hinders a lot of relationships. And you obviously see that throughout the Ozu filmography, um, before we get into the third act and, you know, the, um, the giving away of the daughter, I feel like we should talk about a subplot. Uh, the, the son, his older son, because he has a younger son who still lives at home with them, but he also has his older son, Koichi who is married to Akiko, I believe is her name is. And mm-hmm. she is just ragging on him because he wants to buy a new set of wood, not even a whole new set of golf clubs, just some woods, you know, and they're really nice clubs. And well, he- isn't it because he borrows the money from his dad and says it's for like something else? <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, and yes. also he kind of just like takes the clubs like uh it, it, it's a weird thing where he kind of just takes the clubs on a loan and he's like, I might buy these. And then his friend who was hooking him up with them was like, hey, I actually told the guy that you're definitely going to buy them. So yeah. I need the money now after it was more of like a test run at first. And uh, yeah, Akiko is obviously not happy with it. And her solution is, I guess it's kind of a pessimist read. It's a very like materialist yeah. solution of, okay, you could buy your golf clubs, but I get to buy whatever I want, you know? Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I do really love that, uh, you know, the, the shots of him swinging the clubs on the pillow at home. And then you go to the driving range, that great rooftop driving range, which doesn't have much room. So it's just like they're hitting it at a target that's 10 feet away. And uh, I don't know, as a boy who often just wants to go swing the yeah. clubs, uh, I definitely understand his pain because it's like you have obligations that get in the way of a game that is built specifically for the intent of leisure. You know, like <laughs> it's a leisurely activity, uh, leisure rather, yes. uh, pleasure, leisure, eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> it is an escape, but there's also no escape from the regular routines of not just domestic life, but working a job that kind of sucks. You know, she, yeah. he wishes he made a little more money so that this wouldn't be a problem at all. And, uh, you know, the, the conflict of wanting to buy golf clubs, but your old lady won't let you, uh, runs a lot deeper than it appears on the surface. And I really love the way it plays out, particularly when he just doesn't want to confront her about it. And he comes home from the range and he's just laying down smoking, (laughs) staring at the ceiling, just ignoring everything. And the sister Michiko even comes over to talk and she's just like, what's his problem? Like, why is he just chilling here like this? And he gets ragged on on that scene. Yeah. He gets gets some humble pie. He's being a little mopester though. I've been there. I've, I've been there. Sometimes it's just like, Hey, Pick your head up, uh, splash some cold water on your face, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, it is. It's interesting, like, how much, like, like, attention the subplot is given to, like, in relation to, like, his dad. Because it's like you you could kind of see maybe some similar tendencies at play going on here, you know? It's Mm -hmm. not exactly like his dad, although life might deliver him there. You know what I mean? (laughs) We know about the waves of life, the the rocky shores of reality um, but, but uh it is welcome it, back to the rocky shores of reality <laughs> and uh but like yeah like just there's something very like i don't know i think you're right it's a very pessimistic re- just like even like kind of him just like laying down not trying to say anything it's it seems like he's there's an avoidance of actual the problems the problems are still being avoided and it seems like they're only going to stack up it's incredibly bleak and i think that like ozu has always had a lot of like western influence in his films but i think in the early like silent ones where he's still figuring out like um his milieu and the genre he would work in where he's doing like 
some of the crime ones, they're more like direct references to like American films. And this is just like, I don't know, the uh, landing ultimately on the side of like extreme pessimism of the materialist culture that's been imported. Basically, I, as it wraps up, he decides, yes, I do need to marry off my daughter. And first he gets tricked by his friend because uh, earlier in the film he had pranked a waitress into thinking that his friend died, uh, which is such a, like, I, I hate to oh, say the- pointless <laughs> scene because it definitely fits into the movie and it's called back on later. But it really just took, not took me out of it. I think it's the funniest scene in the movie. Let me just get that <laughs> on the record. Uh, it just really threw me for a loop. I was not expecting that trick. Oh, yeah, because they're like he died fucking his wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes back later where he's like, all right, that guy you told me about. Let's set it up. Let, let's have a little matchmaking session with him and my my daughter. And he's like, "Oh, you didn't hear? He's he's already getting married. Yeah, he's with my girl." Yeah. <laughs> he's like, uh, "And no, I'm just fucking with you." And it's such a funny little reversal there. And one of the great uh, narrative ellipses in the Ozu filmography, which is full of them, where he says, "Okay, let's set a matchmaking date," you know. And then we see her in her wedding dress, and it's just like. I I got a little emotional. I gotta yeah. say, uh, you know, I've been I've been around some weddings recently. My, my my grandma just got remarried, and it was an incredibly emotional experience to see. And uh, so to see this this story about you know the the whole range of adult life, pretty much. I guess the youngest character in the movie is the young son who still lives at home, but I'm sure is of adult age. And so to see this journey that like time takes all these characters on and the the time just absolutely folding over to skip from the matchmaking process or skip over the courting process entirely is it really just hit me like a wall full of bricks yeah you know i you know the a brick wall you may say time (laughs) passing really just kind of you know uh hitting you like bricks like you would say but um i mean in terms of like a much more i don't know like screenwriterly uh, thing like it really centers like the movie on like kind of the father and like yeah how he's kind of uh, taking things in and it's because you kind of i mean i think people could kind of tell his fate like what's going to happen after he marries off his daughter even before this but like like you say you have this passage of time and then boom it's already here the thing that yeah. we know was going to happen is already here and it's like he 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 can kind of he's you could see him kind of realize this too mm-hmm. like in in a way it's a it's it's a lot to take in and with that ambiguity there it's like you're not left with like a sense of reassurance that it's like i mean the wedding like scene we get with the daughter like is is nice enough and it's like it, it, it tends to imply like that they would have a good marriage but yeah. not all that much it's like up to like chance like you don't know and it's like that's I don't know. That's how life is. It could go either way. Yeah. Well, that's what's that's what's tragic about that whole situation, right? Is like it's not. I think it's. I think yes, the daughter should kind of branch away from the father. You know, maybe try to find a life of her own. At least not be a maid for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever. But it's like you know, at first she's very adamant about not getting married, and she doesn't want to do it too. But it's like kind of just the threads of society just. Uh, just pulling at both of them, kind of pulling them apart, even though it is in a way they should 
evolve past each other in a sense, but it's just like the way they do is it might not be natural. It might speed things up a little bit. You know what I mean? And all of this is coming from like a filmmaker who was a guy who lived with his mom his entire life. From what I've read, a pretty, you know, like, uh, I mean, it worked a lot, but yeah, he seemed to be, you know, a pretty interior guy himself. So, Mm. uh, I mean, I guess, you know, what better way to have knowledge about a situation than to live it? <laughs> yeah. I, I like how it expands upon, I guess, what you would call the late spring ending where, right. you know, the late spring ending, he marries off his daughter and then he's peeling apples, you know, and it's like just really sad to look oh at. But mm-hmm. here it's just like, it just keeps going. It's oh like, oh, well, God. we'll have a little drinking reunion with the friend, get nice and drunk, sad, sad drunk. Not happy drunk, but is sad that where drunk. They say the line in the end. In the end, we spend our lives alone. Yeah. That's pretty close to the end, where it's just yeah. like, just letting them. Yeah, you're gonna. Everyone dies well, alone. Also, like they're talking about like why even raise children? <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's also like the last conversation with the pals is pretty sad. They're coming to some sour revelations. It's like it's not really worth it to raise children. It's like they, what they just leave. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because he still has a son at home. <laughs> The younger son is still there. That is true. How like the like, <laughs> the younger son seems pissed at him at the end. He comes yeah. home drunk again, and he's yeah. just like singing the World War Two song, still drunk. And his son's just like, "Dad, you gotta shut the fuck up!" Like I'm trying. I to mean, go to it, sleep it also here. it kind of like in, in a very like non-direct way. It kind of addresses it's like you know, just some you're gonna have a least favorite child. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, uh, or, or at least or a child like in a, a maybe, child who doesn't like you as much as the other kids do. Exactly, or like one that you don't get along with mm. as well. You know what I mean? And you know, being less I don't know cynical about it. It's just like yeah, that's just there's just a kid you get along with less than you do the other ones. <laughs> and they do have a bit of a bond. The kid tells him about his crush on the bus driver no, at yeah. one point, which is sweet, but it's also just like sandwiched in between two very dramatic scenes, kind of. So it's kind of nonchalant, but uh, yeah, you get him singing you get a montage of emptiness inside yeah. the house. Just all like eight shots in a row, I think uh, of just fucking emptiness. And it is, it's pretty swiftly cut together, but it feels like forever. It's, I, I don't know. Ozu is so great at expanding and contracting time like that. And uh, yeah, this is just it, just full stop classic. I There's no, uh, no bones about it. I, I might, I don't know. It's hard for me to say what I prefer or don't because things like Ozu films really take a while to really settle into my brain. I watched this like a whole week ago at this point and it's still, I'm still figuring it out. I'm going four and a half bullets. I'm gonna go four and a half bullets as well. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it's it's a. I mean, it's a great movie, and it like it in terms of like the ending. It's yeah. There's like the way it, it just kind of uh, just stops on these things in the house, and like some shots I feel like we've seen before in the movie too. Like he kind of returns to and like this this emptiness, and then. Yeah, you pour an, another drink, and uh, you know what I mean. That's we'll see where the night le- takes us. I'm going uh, five bullets. This is uh, I don't know. It's hard to say because there's so many Ozu movies that are just like up there and classic. But I love this as like a, a last film. Like it feels like a pretty definitive statement of a lot of things that he was working towards. And it's just the most urban and industrial and westernized. And he's like confronting that head on while also like combining like his chops for like a real comedic sensibility with just something that has a lot of despair in it. 
But I, I, like as I said earlier, like I think it's obviously like a profoundly sad ending. But I think the conclusion of like older generations making wet like I don't know I feel like Ozu has always been on the side of the younger generation and that like recognizing like you got to make way you let the young people take over it's gonna happen eventually like why fight it and that just sort of like calm acceptance of the future even though you may have like trepidations and like certainly be uncertain about the direction you're heading it's just you got to go with the the sands of time true but also sands of time leave leave some people behind Absolutely. yeah I think, and i think oh, that sand gets in your eyes that sand gets <laughs> in your eyes so I, did, I think i think ozu i think of course he's he's like this has to happen i don't know if it's a good thing a that good, it will yeah happen. good or, or a, ha- a happy thing but you're right he's like you got to make way because that's that's just what it is that's that's what life is on un, you know unfortunately or fortunately maybe good for the daughter for the pops, not so much, but uh, JT saying urban made me think of something, and this might be more of an off mic bit, but like urban Ozu. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say <laughs> let's let's not walk this out on mic. There was whoa, no whoa. way urban meant anything else. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back oh, on extended clip. God. either them or you <laughs> you're right business is ruthless uh, that's why we had to yeah. you know close the door what is it's that? them yeah it's them. it's them they want what is, <laughs> is business is ruthless is from so i don't i don't remember it sounds like a very generic statement but no that's a good tagline yeah throw that on there <laughs> wall street too True. I mean, business is ruthless that's what succession is about right <laughs> business is ruthless it's a ruthless business <laughs> exactly it really is it works both ways yeah <laughs> Damn, as we grow older, we have so much economics and business on the mind. <laughs> Extended know, Clip you... is now a finance podcast. True. <laughs> we've defected and we've become uh, financiers, but not enough to fund the continuation of the podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> we've de- we've decided, we took a look at the margins. It's not worth it. <laughs> Money Mal- wise. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Well, speaking of, do we have a little segment of Money Malcolm for this week? The return uh, of Money Malcolm? Yeah, you know what? Uh, let's go Money Malcolm. Sick. I'm, I'm Malcolm. Kramer, and welcome to my world. You need to get in the game. Go out of business and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. Because it's, it's NFL opening or it was NFL opening weekend, folks. And that's, and if, you know. If you notice an excitement in my voice that you haven't heard while I'm talking about movies, it's because I got some money on this shit, all right? <laughs> and, you know, I'm more of a, I'm more of a, for me, for me it's more of a, it's a Sunday night party. <laughs> oh, yes, dude. <laughs> Sunday night football. I'm more on the, yeah, that tip. You know what I mean? But, uh, I mean, you 
as we do, you know, I appreciate the classics. Uh, but we're going to, this one's called, this edition of Money Malcolm is called Hedging Your Bets. <laughs> because that's exactly what I did. I, you know, it's a very important lesson. So coming in, I, I was really hyped on, for some reason, I thought the Washington football team was going to win this week. That was, that was my big money bet. I was mm-hmm. like, football team on the way. We're going to go under 44 and a half points for the Chargers and uh, Washington football team game. Vikings, Texans against the spread because everyone thinks the Texans are bad because of the controversy. They're still kind of good. And uh, really only the football team failed me in the end. And that's it's a failure of a franchise. It's, you know, they, they can't change the name right. I don't remember when they've ever been good. Like, it's just, it's bad news over there. But, you know with money you got to protect it you, you do gotta, you have to protect it you can't let it slip through your fingers so i was like let's let's just go a little more, more safe let's go seahawks panthers cardinals on their spread no no you know points yards no player things you know just classic you know win them out football by three and it worked so you know it, just hedge your bets people that's this is an awful fucking segment of money. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I'm learning so much about gambling. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the last money Malcolm segment. Come Hold on, on. Go don't away you, yet. don't you dare. <laughs> because well, now it's time for Malcolm in the middle. <laughs> Life is unfair. Malcolm, well, have yeah. you seen any movies this week? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, and one of them. You have called? to log into a gambling site yeah. to see this one for another five-minute delay I have to yeah. cut out. For that amazing display I just... No. You know, <laughs> movies, they come automatically to me. You know, betting, it's, it's, it's a learning process. But Porky's, Bob Clark. This movie has a reputation, right? It has a reputation of some teen boys peeping around. Up to no good. Up to no good in the girls' locker room trying to look at some pussy. And... This, I mean, that happens. That happens in the <laughs> yep. movie. But, I mean, th- there's more of a general debauchery. It is like a great, any great 80s teen comedy. It's about trying to get laid. Trying to, you know what I mean? But these are guys who already, you know, they get laid here and there. That's, that's, these guys are not like the underdogs of the school, you know, they, but like, you know, they're kind of the ruffians. And what's kind of surprising about this movie, because of course, you know, 80s comedies is maybe, you know, there's a lot of dated stuff in that, so I'm not going to be surprised. But even by like an 80s comedy standard, it's like they're like calling black people the N word. They're Jesus <laughs> like they're, Christ! Like they're they're uh, getting into fights with other people at school because they're Jewish. They're uh, <laughs> oh, they're going shit. to like whorehouses and like trying to all like have uh, you know they're you know go uh, all in on you know eight eight friends going on one you know it's kind of some some nasty stuff kind of like the the normal antics of you know your 80s white boy you know comedy just trying to you know get a little piece of pussy in high school it's like these guys are rabid fucking <laughs> yeah. animals, dude and like they they have this you know kind of shorter friend called peewee who like they kind of just keep around to make fun of you know always have girls at school telling me as a small penis or whatever uh, and it's just, I guess what's, what's, what's great about, it's not a great movie, you know, and it's, but like, there are some laughs to be had, like kind of like the gym teacher who howls like a dog when she has sex. That's pretty funny. Um, 
That could change any around on funny sex scenes right there. It's it's in the background of a gym class too, and the old that this all right. This is this is this is the most messed up part of them. There's like kind of an older, you know, fatter gym lady teacher that these people like these kids just bully to no end or whatever. Um, but the the great peeping scene or whatever. This is kind of a spoiler, but odds are you, you probably might not seek out Porky's. So I got, I'll deliver the meat to you here. There's a great scene where they start peeping on the girls in the girls' locker room. But what do you know? The girls like it. They're like, ooh. You know what I mean? And like, but old nasty gym teacher has to come in. She has to ruin some of the fun. But she doesn't know what's going on at first. But, you know, in like kind of, you know, the teasing that the, you know, the high school girls do to these boys, you know, like kind of liking the peeping. One of the boys takes another step through the people. He puts his penis Put his penis through there, and and uh, she's like, "What is this? <laughs> what?" And then she like fucking like yanks his like keeps trying to yank his penis throughout the wall, and like there's so there's just getting tugged off, kind of, but it's like, "Ouch!" <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, there's a lot of other stuff that happens in this movie. They like they take down a brothel. That's kind of like the main. They they run a brothel out of business, clean up the streets, but uh, uh, it's the good old boys. But uh, uh, it, it it concludes with like like the gym teacher has been stalking them the entire time because she's like crazed by how like miserable they make her life, and like tries to sexually assault the guy who had his penis through the people. Jesus and then Christ, the cops man. arrest the, the gym teacher, and the movie ends. <laughs> um, that's insane. <laughs> See, it's kind of funny. I, I did not think this is what Porky's it's, would be. It's the most, like, one of the most, like, because there's other movies have more extreme stuff or, like, more, mm. you know, uh, cutting of body parts or, you know, stuff like that. This is, like, the most mean spirited movie yeah. I've ever s- seen. And it's, like, it's full of like that annoying mean kid laugh that you you know you hear at high school at someone who's like who thinks they're so funny and it's like just eight groups of these boys just doing like the <laughs> like just aggressive bully laugh the whole time. It's for some viewers it might be a, a bit much, but I guess that's what kind of drew me to this. I'm like this is so, like just as a cultural object, this is insane. It goes beyond even like you couldn't make this nowadays. It's just like. I don't like this is like these like and I think Bob Clark is intentionally ramping some of these things up but he's you know he's a softy he 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 gives the boys redemption in in a way at the end but it's like of course this is supposed to be extra nasty I don't think Bob Clark is saying you know this is normal or whatever but you know I think he's making some other irresponsible decisions as well but I it's 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 worth a watch you going to go porkies too Check. Uh, I it think is directed Bob, by Bob Clark, yeah. yeah. So it's maybe one of these days. To be honest, it did kind of put me in a bad mood after watching, <laughs> after watching this movie. I was kind of in a bad mood. Did you watch it by yourself or with yeah. friends? By yourself, by yeah. Because I feel like it's the kind of movie you watch with the boys or yeah. whatever. True. Even you if be like hooting and pushing each yeah. other and farting the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Especially yeah, farting. That, that probably takes away some of the meanness. Of it too, maybe. Michael, maybe. I'm sorry. Why did you cover your mic with your finger while you said that? Because I realized I, I fucking there's like a hair on it. it fucking like I was trying to like wipe it off slyly, but okay. um, yeah. If you 124 wanna... episodes in, you thought you you'd know. seen it all, right? There's only one place you talk. <laughs> I'm reinventing the game. Um, but to be fair, like this is not like a poorly directed move. Like there's like like good 
composition decisions, like a couple camera movements. So it's like Bob Clark. This is not Super Baby Geniuses to Bob Clark. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Clark could still, you know, whip his wrist a little bit or whatever. So, uh, yeah. When are you guys? Go? I've talked about porkies for like seven minutes. <laughs> that rules. No, I I enjoyed every minute of that. Um, I watched in the theater uh, 2001's Pulse uh, by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Um, I had not seen this movie. Um, they're doing the little uh, Kurosawa like run, like with a handful of his films, and I was like, "Damn, you know what? I should I should see this in a theater. I bet this is going to be a fun time." And I don't know, someone who uh, values and fetishizes early like digital textures. There are a lot of them in this movie, and they look. Uh, very eerie. I don't know. I'm not like certainly this is the the second Kurosawa I've seen. So I don't think like I have all that strong of a grasp of what he's getting at. Um, like or I can't speak to anything larger, but I don't know. It's just a fucking amazing movie. And I think really speaks well to like early digital anxieties, just not knowing uh the internet like it's it's a creepy thing i remember it like taps into like the early 2000s like feel of when i was a a child and like trying to like search for like pornography (laughs) and then like being worried that that you would turn into a smudge on the wall (laughs) uh, uh, uh yes and that my parents would get like at like every month we got like a telephone book sized printout of all the websites you had been. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and that they would see that I searched like tits or something. That's also some like, you know, like those those images of like the people in front of their webcams looking mm. lonely, you know what I mean? That looks like some some camera videos. <laughs> it's like it's it's very creepy and yeah. like has that quality of like a lot of I don't know, st- like I have friends who would show me like beheadings or whatnot yeah. as a kid and it's like there's that fucked up like early part of digital culture that it gets really well while also I think like not like being like extremely technophobic I think it's like very um aware of the like great potential the internet has for like interconnectivity and bringing people together and there's a weird like empathy to these digital ghosts that I feel like is uncommon Mm -hmm. um in like uh, other movies that I've seen like that or like that are going for like spooky digital stuff. I feel like that's less of a consideration and uh, I don't know, just an amazing creepy time. And I think one of like the, be- like even though you just say, I think he does consider the ways it could bring people together. I think maybe, well, I mean it, it, it yeah. certainly does fall on like a negative, <laughs> like, and like yeah. things do not go well in well, that yeah. world. Kind but. of taking like the simple sentiment of like the internet, like isolates people and divides us apart. Something that's like pretty scoffable at this point, but I guess, you know, somewhat true. I think it, it, it's it like, complicates it enough. Yeah. It complicates it enough, but mm-hmm. also, yeah, it does like a good reading of that. Like, you know, there, it, there's such an easy way to make that just like corny and bullshit. And if, 
I think Kiyoshi Kurosawa is, you know, anything but that, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. if he yeah. told me that it's a movie about the computer killing people uh, around Y2K, like going online being the real killer, yeah. uh, I would be like, okay, that's probably really corny. And then you watch two minutes of it and you realize it's just like, oh, this guy is one of the masters. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, we briefly mentioned a four-hour film last week that we all saw in theaters, A Brighter Summer Day. I watched another four-hour film. I actually kind of, you know, chopped this up over the course of like a whole week. You TV'd week. it. You yeah, TV'd I, I TV-moded it, and, you know, that's fine. It's fine. You got to um, do it sometimes. The latest by Frederick Wiseman is City Hall, and it is an, I was going to say investigation, kind of is, uh, an observation, um, you know, the, the inner workings of a city, and that city is the beautiful city of Boston. Uh, as, as our podcasting colleague Bill Simmons once said about uh, the Ben Affleck film The Town, it's one of those movies that makes you think, oh yeah, Boston. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness it is a fantastic movie um it is one of wiseman's performance movies as some others have noted the the mayor at the time marty walsh weaves in and out of all of these scenes and he's very involved in the film basically as involved as a you know quote-unquote main character of almost any wiseman that i've seen has been but the thing is you know, old Marty Walsh thinks he's a progressive. He thinks he's a lib. He thinks he can do everything. But through the sheer power of editing and the, you know, uh, duration in particular, Wiseman really leaves him hanging out to dry. And I, I think if you're a more, I don't know, a more liberal viewer, a more, um, I don't know, a viewer who isn't as analytical either, you might not see this, but the way that he allows all of these city proceedings to play out and then just shows Marty Walsh swooping in at the end being like, you know, when I was growing up in Dorchester, there was a lot of racism. <laughs> and like basically to that effect, uh, no matter what aspect of city life he's doing. Um, and it's just like, it kind of shows that he is a very, he is very fallible. He's not the super mayor. He is a guy who clearly has a lot of shortcomings and, um, you know, it is kind of putting up a front for a lot of the more, you know, the, the progressive project of Boston. And also, outside of him, it's just classic Wiseman where you just get all of these great characters. They're real people. They're not characters, but in film terms, they are great characters. There's a meeting about the opening of the first medical marijuana dispensary in Dorchester, and it is mm -hmm. so fucking funny. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like a woman at one point is really eager to say like... Um, the demographic of Dorchester is minority majority. And, you know, I don't really see any of you guys and then immediately backtracks. He's like, well, actually, I know that Vietnamese is 40% of Dorchester and I don't want to assume you, uh, the Asian members of the council, <laughs> and just like is immediately walking it back, kind of, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, very funny. And that whole meeting is getting taped for Instagram Live, like a guy is Instagram living it, even though there's like three cameras covering it. Like clearly he knows there's going to be footage of it out there. But this dude in a Dustin Pedroia jersey is like Instagram living it yeah. and it's it's awesome and obviously it's Boston so you see like people wearing sports jerseys in the most fucking inappropriate places <laughs> like people wearing Pats gear and Red Sox jerseys like where they absolutely fucking should not be that's just, that's their formal wear though you know <laughs> 
And um, I, I think that the transitions in Wiseman's films between these like long meeting scenes have gotten really good over the years. They've always been good, but uh, his eye for photography is just so fucking stellar at this point and so concise to what he tries to do. You know, you watch something like Monrovia, Indiana, and I was shocked by that film. The the long takes of just like tractors plowing through a field or something like that. It's like, oh my God, like in between these five minute, 10 minute scenes of just like city ordinances or whatever, you just get these beautiful observances of what the city is really like and you have that here too but it's all of them are cut together much quicker and you just have these barrages these montages of the faces of buildings you know and uh, he really saves the last uh the, the the best for last there's a couple like really incredible shots at the end and uh yeah uh city hall fantastic classic wiseman there's a scene where these two guys are working like traffic observation like there there's clearly cameras fucking everywhere to lead into our next film the thousand eyes of dr mabusa mm-hmm. in the theme of surveillance um once you get in this little uh this little office where these two guys are just like watching the traffic flow of all of boston uh through all of these like hundreds of cameras and just like yeah it's a little slow over in dorchester yeah that street's a little slow right now oh pull up this street what about that highway? You know, and it's just watching traffic and just seeing the the man hours, the labor that goes into making a city function, even at its most incompetent, even at its most inefficient, and even at its most sometimes boring is always a delight to see from old Freddie Wise. So uh, yeah, eventually look forward to the episode on that on our uh, one of our sister stepsister podcasts, mm-hmm. Sean Glynis's Wiseman podcast. <laughs> Stuck stepsister yeah, podcast. Because it's a hot fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah. You want to check that out because it's a hot, you know, that's, that's why he said stepsister. Because it's, yeah. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. <laughs> And we're back on extended clip. Uh, the Thousand Eyes, sorry, the One Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa, or the Diabolical Dr. Mabusa, as some uh, countries released it as. Actually, my subtitles were fucking junk on my oh, file. Oh, yeah, they were You had the same one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, did you give me I the gave file? You the file uh, yeah. yeah, so the, the title, the translation was Diabolical, and then uh, it was getting a little uh, little weird with gender there. It was that's, switching uh, up some pronouns. Yeah. Where'd you get Movie Paradise? Because um, that, that's where I got mine, and the, the subs are exactly like that. Yeah. No, I downloaded Dang. it from KG a while ago. So it was I a mean, big file like for like, Movie Paradise. Like a, it was like nine gigs. There was like a recent release of it. It oh. just, I don't know if it's like the subtitles on that were bad because these are pretty fucked I up think, at I points. think it was a swing and the miss on the subtitles all if any germans are listening it might be time for a new translation yeah exa- exactly do your work 
Yeah, yeah get, do your get, fucking work. Get to work. <laughs> Haven't you done enough harm already? <laughs> uh, yeah. If there's one thing that this movie has taught me, it's a, it's a dark German legacy. Yes. So, a dark legacy lies with Dr. Mabusa, of course, the original Joker, as we discussed uh, many <laughs> moons ago, uh, over two years ago with Ryan Swen uh, on our podcast. Ooh, that's a little teaser for next week. Uh, Ryan Swen came on to talk about the testament of Dr. Mabusa as, uh, alongside Unfriended Dark Web. And this one picks up, not quite where it left off, but about three decades later. Germany has been through some shit in the meantime. And really, they've done some shit to the world. The world has been through some shit at the hands of Germany in the meantime. And I think this film really plays into that. You know, um, there there's a character who <laughs> his real name is Hieronymus B. Mitzelzweig, who is, you know, disguising himself as an insurance man, but ends up being an Interpol agent on the hunt for Dr. Mabusa. And he talks about how even inanimate objects, even buildings, uh, can qualify under the auspices of astrology. And it is when the ground is first broke, when the first brick is laid, that is the time of birth. And of course, the hotel that most of this movie takes place in, not just under, you know, Capricorn or whatever bullshit, Sorry if I offend any uh, astro heads in the audience. Um, but you, you, I mean, they were Nazis, bro. They were yeah. German. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like more, more important than all of that is that the first brick was laid under Nazi Germany. And so this hotel is obviously a symbol of the the haunting that hangs over Germany in the future. You know, Germany, they, they make such efforts to be a not just a progressive country, but a country that moves past and never forgets uh, the horror that they inflicted on certain ethnic groups as well as the entire world, uh, the fear that they struck in those people. And uh, I don't know why I'm talking about it, like they're a movie character, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, they were some bad hombres. Bad hombres, the <laughs> Nazis. Um, but... <laughs> I, I think that's a good way to kind of get into this movie as a space movie, right? not like outer space, but a movie uh, uh, about the space that it occupies. Uh, and, and Lang is obviously like the god of architecture as, as far as directors go. And I think that he really indulges in his best traits in this movie in terms of the exploration of this haunted hotel, uh, haunted not by ghouls, but by the ghosts of Nazi past. Yeah, And so you bring back the ultimate trickster uh who is you know he he makes <laughs> the ultimate evil man who makes hitler seem like a forgivable character uh the the root of oh, all evil itself. the kids hate dr mabusa <laughs> that's what's funny i just like you talking about this because of course you could kind of feel within the movie it's like yeah he's kind of dealing with uh the past as we like to call it yeah you know? something happened in germany but it's like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like there's like Mabuse followers still around. Yeah, it's yeah. like we gotta sow the word of Mabuse. It's like, it's like, oh wait, I guess that's that's kind of what happens with the old uh, old Doctor H. You, know? <laughs> you could kind of you know take a if you did a Hitler you know re replace Mabuse with Hitler, it's like it's like. Damn, this is a political Damn, ass yeah, movie. Yeah, a yeah. lot of like, those guys had similar ideas. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> well, that's I. I mean, to on a like, I guess a less serious take of it. Like, I love when in, like the they're all in the police room, which is like just a great scene. Like, I love how Lang will operate the camera, kind of let it like 
slowly kind of like pushing on like the person who's talking and everyone else is just puffing a mad cigar or whatever. And then, but they're like, like they're trying to figure out who's doing all these crimes around here. One of them's like, Mabuse had some plans like 30 years. Like they're like, it could be the Mabuse crime plan, not Mabuse himself, but like, the Mabuse crime plan could still be in action. Yeah. It rules. <laughs> Mabu- Mabuse, dude, Mabuse's living rent free <laughs> after all these years. But by the end of the movie, they're going to make him pay that fucking rent. Uh, so <laughs> there, there is a, a crime wave in this very confined district uh, around the hotel. You have the uh, commissioner, the police commissioner Cross, played by uh, Garrett Fraub. I don't know how to fucking say that name. Uh, you have Don Adams as Marion, a beautiful woman who was attempting suicide uh, under the hypnosis, of course, of Wolfgang Priest as Dr. Jordan, who also plays another, uh, or no, sorry, Wolfgang Priest as Cornelius, the hypnotist, who also plays uh, Dr. Jordan and, of course, Dr. Mabusa. And, of course, I'm spoiling that it's a multiple person uh, or a multiple role performance by Wolfgang Priest, but it is truly a tour de force performance by him. He yeah. is all fucking over the place in this movie. It's great. And uh, speaking of being all over the place, the feeling of being watched is all over the place, as demonstrated by the title card. You know, Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. Then you get all these eyeballs floating around the cityscape, uh, you know, over the opening titles. And the eyeballs then have these spotlights that point down, and you can't tell if they're supposed to be like flying saucer-looking things or spotlights looking at people. But uh, it's incredible the the feeling of surveillance that runs throughout this film even before it's revealed that uh you know through showing a screen that characters are watching that the entire hotel is fucking bugged by Mabusa's security goons i mean i think this is like the meat and bones of what makes this movie so interesting yeah. right is yeah. like the surveillance at play here i mean you speaking of the architecture of like the apartments or whatever when when we when it's kind of like we get the behind the scenes like we like uh, the Henry what's the Henry character the main guy yeah the main guy yeah Henry he has a normal name so <laughs> Henry Travers Henry Travers <laughs> the American the American yeah. yeah and like he's hey nice and then he's like looking through like the mirror or whatever and oh, they're like that's watching insane. her like get dressed and like they're both kind of having like this like little mutual perv out movement and then shake themselves out of it but it is like kind of like it's there's it's it's shocking like you know what i mean this this surveillance and 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 like i love how it even plays with it further where it's like we get like kind of like these uh, you know out of context shots of like the scene we're seeing played out on a tv screen mm-hmm. above it and i think i mean that's i think that's one of the most like kind of uh that's like one of the most great shots of in, invoking paranoia it's take the same mm-hmm. scene you're watching Put that on a TV screen, yeah. somewhere else where that's not. It's that's. I think that's just genius. Yeah, and it takes a while to pull back, but like uh, and reveal that. Like you're watching that shot of the surveillance feed for like a few seconds before, but yeah. it's just a little off. The texture of the image is just a little off, True. and then once the camera pulls back, you're like, oh fuck. And the Mabusa setup is so much more intricate than what the cops are working with here. Yeah. Like you got like, I mean, up until like. 
really the last act for me, they seem like pretty incompetent. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's a very basic point to make, but Lang is clearly getting at something here where it's like, I think he directly says that like, um, when police investigate a case, there's no privacy. And obviously, mm -hmm. I don't know, similar concerns with the police being able to have the capability that Mabusa has. Yeah, I it's it's awesome. I don't know. Uh, to set up the, the crimes that are happening throughout the city, first we see a drive-by that is very similar to the one we saw in the Testament of Dr. Yeah. Mabusa. Great little callback. Let, let you know we're back in this bitch. Uh, but of course, from there, the plotting is it just moves like nothing. And like compared to Doctor the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which is like a very gra gracefully plotted two-plus-hour movie. This one has that. That B movie feel, you know, Fritz Lang was making some Hollywood noirs, some down and dirty fucking movies. So he was like, "All right, well, if I'm gonna go back to Germany to make another Mabusa, I'm gonna take those lessons and make it kind of feel like a Hollywood B noir, but at the same time, really invoke all of that crazy German shit I was working with before I went <laughs> to Hollywood." And it's it's just such a great combination. But I love that that drive by. He uses a a fucking steel needle gun. Yeah. That has this like circular tubular barrel that makes it look like it's a futuristic ray gun or something makes, like that. Need to check the uh, internet movie firearm database on that one. Uh, I thought it was like a semi-automatic weapon. I was like, I yeah, this motherfucker's about to like light this guy up. Like I was, I was a little surprised at first, but then you know the needle t through the ear or whatever. I get you know that's even more surprising because it just looks like such a such a powerful gun. But I guess that kind of plays at. Kind of like, yeah, the I think like in like I think Lang, like I said, he loves to invoke paranoia in this movie, and like them, you know, putting a needle in someone's brain is like that's that's just that's like that you know gets you rubbing your chin a little bit more than like some guy getting murked by some bullets. It's just like. What the fuck are these people up to? What's going on here? Uh, so I did just check the internet uh, movie firearm database, and that is the unidentified weapon, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, it, yeah, uh, I've never seen this on IMFDB, but I also don't really go too deep on it. I just figured it out. I found that, out about it last week, but uh, it just describes number 12 shoots a fictional assault rifle that has been stolen from a research facility. It shoots thin needles. Just got to make sure that it's a fictional gun. That's, you know, <laughs> like I think this isn't a sci-fi movie, but it's something that sci-fi movies do that I, I got to agree with. If you're making a movie, make your own gun too. Exactly. Yeah, make your own little gun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, now I'm distracted just scrolling through the uh, the SMG that the guy shoots later and then all the pistols that are actually correctly identified throughout the movie. Should we get into guns? Should we be gun guys? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, last, just to uh, clock <laughs> every firearm. I mean, it's extended clip podcast. Yeah, damn. We should shoot a gun before the, <laughs> <laughs> the movie's a, I, I love when done. they first intro the idea uh, of Mabusa being behind this. Like you mentioned, Malcolm, like it could be maybe his, you know, his ideas being carried out and you get this great cutaway and it just cuts to his grave and a zoom in on his grave and then back to the police meeting and it's like fritz is just pulling out all the stops here just so punchy you know i like his visual style in this it is like you know for like a, a b you know kind of emulating that b movie noir style and like never to say that lang's movies that ever felt lazy but it's like there's there's so much like in every camera movement or like kind of like more like detail orientated shots and stuff like that. There's just like you could there's just effort put forth in every composition and whatnot. Every like movement, there's like a 
deliberateness to it. Like it's, I mean, we're in the hands of an old master here and it's, he's not letting up. He's not, you know what I mean? He's not, cause I feel like sometimes late style, right. Is like we, we have movies, directors not getting lazy, but they are taking their time or they're contemplating things a little bit more or they're a little bit more like, I don't know, reflective. Yeah. yeah. Or something like that. Whereas this, like, I think it strips it bare, strips it bare. Like it's still reflective on certain things or whatever, but in terms of it's like visual style, it is not reflective. Like it, it it's a, uh, it's a fucking, you know, it's hard as a brick. Absolutely. And I, before I get to the cop, I want to go to the, the psychiatrist played by Mabusa, uh, Wolfgang Priest's character, because I just love his introduction after the woman uh, is going to try and kill herself. And then he talks to her and he just has like his hair is so ridiculous. The the wings like fucking poly walnuts just like got me every fucking time. And then the cop. I love that character, too, because the, the commissioner that is uh, Commissioner Cross, he's just like he's this huge imposing guy but it's just throughout the movie you realize he has no chance yeah. like mabusa is just so much fucking smarter than this guy but i love how confident he seems in the beginning you know you get like um you get this like audio match cut i don't even know how to describe that like uh, it's the commissioner banging his pipe empty and then it coincides with him knocking on a door in the next scene you know <laughs> and it's like yeah I, I visually i understand what the match cut does but this is through audio just repeating that same sound and transporting him from one location to the next and it's when he's really on the prowl for like what this might be and i don't know as i said earlier his confidence is just like it ends up being very funny uh, but at the time, it's very just compelling because it is such a mysterious film for the first 45 minutes. I was truly waiting for like, I knew it was a Mabusa movie, but I was like, how the fuck does Mabusa get looped into yeah. this? Exactly. Yeah. It's, I think it leaves you because is the testament of Dr. Mabusa, it's, uh, so, it, it, it's similar in the sense where it's like, it's not actually Mabuza, yeah. right? It's someone following the notes or like someone who gets cra- like crazily obsessed with his theories, I think. The group up. Yeah, and they yeah. got a little group going on. Exactly. It's just it's weird like that there's cuz it's like I the first one Dr. Mabusa the gambler. Um it's just strange that there are like two movies where it's just like the, the this guy's ideas were fucked up and <laughs> they just destroyed so many people. It you know, well I, uh, like kind of Speaking to like, you know, the cop character and like kind of like the the overwhelming evilness of Mabusa, kind of like an unstoppable evilness. He's like just like a force. Yeah, a force. And like, I don't know, this may be, you know, I might be stretching taffy here, but it's like uh, like it, it, it is like with like the tough guy, kind of like a macho tough guy mentality. It's like. I don't, I don't give a fuck. I'll ramp through this thing. Like I'll take care of it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's funny how like that confidence is so unearned in, in, in like the face of the newer and newer evils that are happening day by day. Kind of like a confident guy, like a cop. Great example. Like I'm going to go out there. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to bust, you know, the yeah. bad guys. And it's like, there is an incomprehensible evil at foot. That is like five steps ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
is going to crush you. And I love the first mm-hmm. real blow to the commissioner's confidence, which is his assistant getting blown up by a phone bomb. <laughs> like, that shit is insane. That really shocked me. Yeah. I, I was pure just, like, in shock mode from that. And uh, he's just like, oh, great. That, you know, he said some guy came to fix the telephone last night while I was out. And clearly it's just, you know, Mabuso, one of his goons, just setting up a phone bomb to detonate the second he picks up the phone. And it's just like... I don't know the the rabbit hole that this film goes down in terms of things getting darker and darker, and then it kind of settles on the American character Travers as kind of being the surrogate character for the audience. But he gets looped in, and uh, he he gets looped in by Marion. That is the the woman who we see attempt suicide in the beginning, and then it's revealed that she's in on everything too. But then she like wants to give it up, and. Um, in the third act, it's revealed that, you know, uh, well, as you said earlier, uh, Mabusa and uh, d- the the doctor and Cornelius are one in the same, and Cornelius isn't even really blind. A great gag, by the way, where the <laughs> Interpol guy throws the pack of cigarettes at him to see if he'll catch it, uh, despite being blind, to expose his fake blindness. Not unlike in Arrested Development, when uh, Jason Bateman throws the Bible at Julia <laughs> Louis Dreyfus's head, uh, but in that one, it's a comedy, so it just clonks her on the head. <laughs> But it's revealed not just that this man is playing three roles, but that he is operating out of this underground kind of like bomb shelter seeming thing. Uh, It it really does feel like a Cold War era bomb shelter, you know, like uh, preparing for the absolute worst where he has all of his surveillance set up, the titular thousand eyes. Uh, We see through those eyes on all those monitors. He has his heavies, you know, uh, keeping keeping the main couple down there. And it it just kind of like before you know it, it's like, oh, we're in the climax of kind of a classic thriller right now, despite the first hour and 15 minutes being so strange, mysterious, all over the place, but exciting more than anything. No, yeah, it is like there are like some traditional inclinations that kind of like just like in terms of like filmmaking and story structure that come through. But like sense of everything that kind of came before it kind of makes them a little bit more special, like you know take like the romance between like marion and like uh, henry the american or whatever not exactly like the craziest most compelling stuff but it's like they're like i don't know i find the image of them like kind of uh, you know getting romantic and kissing like in the surveillance room it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of a moving you know image you know despite all this uh kind of uh you know this cold the cold environment of a an evil man and all his minions. And beyond that, it's yeah. like the the surveillance of her room. Her room is on a two-way mirror, yeah. like on a side of mm-hmm. a two-way mirror. And the guy who shows uh, Travers that is just some dude who works at the hotel. And the more you find it, it's like this guy's like the hotel detective. So it's like this hotel clearly has been through so much shit that they have to have a detective on board yeah. uh, because there's <laughs> been so many crimes there over the year. Like it's, it's ridiculous how dark and seedy this movie is and underbelly, you know, puts it right. It's like under the hotel, there is the evil that controls all that's above it and outward from it. <laughs> yeah. I think that like, I mean, just there's like a level of paranoia in that like first 40 minutes there where it's just like you're trying to like feel out what the film is going to be and like what direction it's going to go because it's like you know there's there's a Mabusa motherfucker in there there's like his thousand eyes you see him you see him it's like so he's got to be there and you're 
obviously Lang is at, at points like cluing you in that it is Cornelius. I don't think that's like too yeah. much of a surprise, but like you don't, you never see him like you like scheming on yeah. <laughs> on screen. You're just watching like the aftermath of mm-hmm. his plans, really, and that just like I don't know. It's it's there's a level of unease there and just not knowing what's going, knowing that there's a larger framework and plans, but like not being able to see those machinations. Just some classical mystery storytelling, leaving enough of it out for you to be like, what the, f- what's going on? You know what I mean? But yeah. the, the elements of which Lang is playing out here with like, you know, like surveillance and just kind of like this, you know, little enclosed environment, everyone just kind of, s- scrambling around it is also yeah it's endlessly interesting it's quite a fatalistic ending too i mean it makes sense he made quite a few noirs in hollywood and he's used to that kind of thing uh but like you have well first of all mary gets shot like uh, to start off the third act basically (laughs) she's shot in the last 20 minutes of this movie she's bleeding to death basically (laughs) like it'll once in a while cut back and she's just clearly suffering so hard she she even while she's bleeding out is like explaining to Travers like what's going on. She describes it as a simulacrum of an accident, which is just like a great way to describe Mabusa's like greater uh, scheme here. Is that like he is putting all of these things into place to the point where it is like a simulation for him. He's just playing a game. He's yeah. just setting all these things into motion, watching them on his monitors. And so as they're sh- uh, or she's shot and he's tending to her, the cops finally bust into the dungeon uh the interpol guy of course plays a big part in that after revealing that he's not an insurance agent (laughs) uh and then we have this great shootout where the cops are chasing mabusa and his gang uh just like down the uh the what's it called the autobahn i guess and uh it's it's so awesome just a great you know automobile shootout ends with the Mabusa car in the water leaves it just open enough like he Mm -hmm. should be drowned in the car but you know there's a couple sequels and Mm -hmm. then I I just love how blunt the fucking ending is like it's literally like getting hit with a crowbar where you just have that fucking messy violent shootout ends with the car in the water and then it can't be longer than like six seconds this shot of uh, uh, the the main couple, Travers and Marion, in the hospital. Her, you know, I guess she got into the hospital in time not to die, but it's still in critical. And they just kiss briefly, and then it's the end. The end. That's all. Mm-hmm. Lang Lang's been around long enough to where he knows where, you know, kind of the the fatty parts of a movie might be. You know what I mean? It's. He's like you. You already know what's gonna happen. Yeah, he's no made his epics at this point. Yeah, you can yeah. just cut and run. You cut. You cut and run. You're like, there. She's alive. You happy? <laughs> and I think the visual style of the film we didn't really give enough credit to. I mean, as we mentioned, the god of architecture is back, and like every single like part of this hotel, um, I he just explores the spaces and sets up these sets Mm -hmm. so well to just have such imposing feelings in the background you know you could just be watching someone talk look a little behind them and you're like oh my god this architecture is 
as terrifying as what the person is saying. You know, <laughs> like it, it, it's just such a menacing fucking film. The black and white, it's not like as stark churrascuro as like 40s noir. It's actually kind of gray in a lot of mm-hmm. spots, but it just makes things so much uglier in that way that you want in a crime film. Um, I'm going to go four and a half. <laughs> I think it's like, it might not be up to the overall scope of Testament of Dr. Mabusa, uh, but I think it really just like hit me on a very guttural level. It, it's such an impactful and immediate film that I, I just loved it. No, yeah, I like this movie a lot too. I'm going to give it four bullets. <laughs> yeah, what you're kind of saying like, yeah, there is like, I, like some images like, you know, the, the six second kiss to end the movie or even like thinking of the beginning of the movie, that guy in the car with his gun. It seemed like it's it's so unexplained at this point. It's so bear you know and i mean it's it feels almost like lonely in a sense i don't know it's just like this kind of like this this dude with a machine gun and kind of like i don't know laying towns like I, like i just give me give me what i know give me mabuse give me noir tendencies like and i could work with that no matter how you know bear it is and you know what i mean and he goes a lot of places especially you know the surveillance aspect i mean adds you know so many layers to this movie but like yeah, what a what a way to go out for Lang and uh, uh, <laughs> my best wishes to the Lang family. <laughs> JT, what do you think? I I also want to send my best to the Lang family. I hope any of the surviving members are doing okay. Yeah. Um, I am gonna give this uh, four and a half bullets. Uh, yeah, it's like Ozu uh, in an autumn afternoon. I feel like it's like the perfect summation of like a career like returning to this early like German character, but then adding a little bit more of that American noir flavor uh, he developed. And just that like, I don't know, I had not seen this one though. I had seen on him afternoon. And I think that it uh, makes a lot of sense that filmmakers who have been around since the silent era. And I mean like obviously film history, um, like so much of that uh, century is just concerned with the ramification and effects of World War Two. Yeah, and especially uh, Japan and Germany. I know yeah. those guys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hung up. But I mean, there's the American yeah. influence in both. Like no, you yeah, have the Henry right. character, yeah. and then in Autumn Afternoon, there's the creeping Westernization, and it's. We just have our grubby little hands all over everything. <laughs> We're in the mix. Watch out. We're coming for you next. <laughs> um, that is going to do it for this week's podcast. No emails this week. Hey, you know what? If you don't want to say bye to us, that's fine. That's fine. Well, Irish goodbye this shit. Well, Irish mm-hmm. goodbye. Um, next week on the podcast, as I alluded to earlier, we are bringing back a returning champion Ryan Swen, our very first guest on the podcast, is coming back for a little full circle. And speaking of full circle, his first appearance was The Way We Live Part 2. Now, his appearance is going to be titled The Way We Live Now. Oh the my movies, God. The Human Surge, and Black Hat. That's right. We're talking about a Michael Mann movie. Finally, I know we did the bonus on Collateral, but... It's it's a be- what if we just did Michael Mann for the rest of the, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the pod? Yeah. Uh, no, but we're doing Black Hat. We're going to talk about probably the theatrical, the Swen, and the FX director's cut are all going to get a little little shout out. You know, we'll see which one we really watch. But I've seen all three, so you know, hey. Um, regardless, I am looking forward to that one. I'm very excited, and 
You guys got anything to say to the people before we go? I like when we have an in-person guest. No, the yeah. vibes are good. Exactly. It's just hanging out. Oh shit! Raiders are going to overtime. Let's watch. Let's go, baby. All right. Goodbye. Just win, baby. <laughs> <laughs>